You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Two years ago, one of the Sovereign Grace pastors in our region, Ben Kreps, he's the senior pastor at Living Hope Church in Harrisburg. He's uh, actually Ken Mellinger. Uh, he's, he's, our, he's Ken's senior pastor. Um, at this regional assembly of pastors in our region, Ben Kreps presented a paper um, called Gospel Culture. Gospel Culture. It was Ben's attempt to explain who we are as a family of churches in Sovereign Grace. Now, if you go on the Sovereign Grace Church's website, You'll find a section there on the website that says Sovereign Grace Church's seven shared values. That includes things like reform doctrine, expository preaching, belief in the continuation of all the gifts of the Spirit, elder-led churches, complementarianism, etc. Those are fundamental distinctives of who we are, what we believe, and how we function within our local churches. But as essential as those seven shared values are to our identity as a family of churches, they do not adequately capture who we are, what we believe, and how we function in the local church. They describe our theological distinctives, but they do not adequately describe our cultural distinctives. They describe our doctrine, but they do not describe how that doctrine shapes the way that we do community together. Now, J.I. Packer defines culture as follows. Culture, a word borrowed from sociology, means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. It's the outward expression of inner beliefs within a community. It's what a community does as a result of what the community believes. And in the history of sovereign grace, the way we do things in our communities goes far beyond our seven shared values. That's why Ben wrote his paper. To go along with our seven shared values, he identified seven gospel culture values that have come to characterize Sovereign Grace churches over the years. Humility, godliness, service, generosity, gratefulness, fellowship, and joy. And as you think about those values, you might think, based on your experience here at Sovereign Grace Church Toronto or with our family of churches as a broader network, you might say, yeah, those things do describe what I've experienced in this family of churches, humility, godliness, service, generosity, gratefulness, fellowship, and joy. Now, Pastor Tim and I, when we were at this regional assembly hearing the presentation of this paper, we were very intrigued by this language of gospel culture. And we started thinking about how we could reinforce these seven gospel values, gospel culture values in our church. One of the ways we did that was we led a series of seven prayer meetings when we prayed that God would cultivate all these values in our church. Um, uh, This whole concept of gospel culture gave birth to Pastor Tim's now famous analogy, at least in our church, um, that if the gospel doctrine is the bread, gospel culture is like the smell. People can smell the bread um, and be attracted to it even before they've tasted it for themselves. The culture of the church is what visitors and newcomers experience when they interact with the church's members, 
long before a word is proclaimed from the pulpit. Now, this isn't meant to minimize the doctrine of the church. It's meant to magnify the doctrine of the church because it's the teaching of the church that produces the culture of the church. You can't have the smell of the bread without the bread itself. Now, for those who are newer to our church and you've had a chance to get to know some people here, you, you look at the community around you and, and you say, this is a special group of people. I want you to know that this community does not exist because of anything that we have done or anything because of who we are. If you knew me before I was a Christian, you would not have liked me very much. This community would not exist. We would not have very much reason to gather together for this big chunk of time on Sunday afternoons to be a community. The gospel has created this community. What you see, what you experience, what you see in the interactions that you have with other people, it is produced by the gospel. Now that was two years ago. Since then, our leadership team has celebrated the gospel culture that we enjoy here at Sovereign Grace. There is much to celebrate in what God is doing in our community in producing grace in our interactions with one another. We regularly give thanks to God for how we have a church that doesn't just say it believes in grace. We have a church that shows grace to others. We can say that the gospel isn't just something on our statement of faith. It's a reality that characterizes who we are as a community. But as we've rejoiced in the gospel culture that we have, we've given increasing thought and prayer to how we can continue to cultivate a rich gospel culture in our community. And one of the ways I've thought about doing that is by doing a sermon series on this topic of gospel culture. But I haven't sensed that it was the right time until now. That has changed because of two recent developments. The first is the ever-increasing and tragic trend of churches having the right theology but the wrong culture. Their doctrine is healthy, but their community is sick. There are times when sound doctrine can cure a poison culture and redeem what is broken, but that doesn't always happen. There may come a point in the life of a church that has departed so far from rich gospel culture that it cannot be rescued. Now, as your pastor, that is one of the things that I fear the most. We may enjoy a healthy gospel culture now, but that isn't a guarantee for the future. We cannot assume that what we are now is what we will be in the future. Instead, we must continue to strengthen and deepen the ties between our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, our belief and our practice. And the only way we can do that is to center our lives on the grace that we find in Christ. That's the first development. The second development has been that I've been waiting for a book that would help me develop some of these ideas about gospel culture because, listen, I am not a pioneer. I don't want to blaze new trails to go where no man has gone before. I I need a guide to show me where I should lead our church. And we have that, obviously, in the scriptures. But we also have that in wise, godly men and uh, pastors and writers who show us the way forward. And uh, just a few... Weeks ago, I read through this wonderful book by Ray Ortland called The Gospel, and uh, the subtitle is How the Church 
portrays the beauty of Christ. And in this book, as simple and as brief as it is, I, I feel like I have found my guide. And he has springboarded me into the letter of 1 Timothy to help me to think and to teach through what it means to cultivate a healthy gospel culture. I encourage you all to pick up a copy of this. Next week, I'm going to hand out a few free copies. Um, But for those who are eager to to read a book on this topic, uh, please pick up a copy for yourself. It's 15 bucks on Amazon. Well worth it. This is a defining Book. Ray Ortland, I've always enjoyed his writing. He's always written not only insightfully but beautifully. Um, but as I read this book, I, I found that what he enjoys writing about most is how the beautiful gospel creates beautiful communities called churches. Here's a couple of quotes from Ray Ortland's book. He says, Gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine. And it must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. Think about that. It is just as sacred. Gospel culture is sacred and needs to be nurtured and preserved in our churches. Listen to this one. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. That leads us to 1 Timothy. I believe that preaching through this letter is one of the ways that we can study and apply gospel culture um, because of the reason why it was written. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes the reason for why he wrote this letter to Timothy and the church at Ephesus, which is the church that Timothy was pastoring. He said, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's writing this so that we would know how we ought to behave in God's household, how church is meant to be done, what life in community as Christians is meant to look like. Every household has its own culture. It doesn't take long uh, uh, when you have entered someone's house and you're interacting with the parents and seeing them interact with their kids and watching their routines that you begin to understand the culture of that family. You look at the way that the family spends its money, the way that it practices hospitality, the way that the family uses its time. Every family, every household has its own culture. And the things that we do reveal the things that we value. Anyone can say that they believe this or that, but it is what they do that reveals what they value. First Timothy chapter three says that Christians aren't only members of their own household. We are members of God's household. God himself is our heavenly father and we are his beloved children. And as his children, as members of his household, we have the privilege and the responsibility of showing the world what God values by the culture that we have by the way that we interact with one another, by the way that we love, forgive, and bear with one another in love. Paul describes God's household, the church, as a pillar and buttress of the truth. What do pillars do? Well, they they hold something up. What do buttresses do? I I didn't know, so I Googled it, and this picture came up. these, These flying arcs, that go extend from the wall down to hold up the, the wall. Those are buttresses. 
Pillars and buttresses hold up something that is greater than them, to put it on display, to, to strengthen its foundations. Now, there's nothing that we can do to strengthen the purity of, of the doctrine of the gospel, but we can hold it up for the world to see. Pillars and buttresses do not draw attention to themselves. They draw attention to what they are holding up. And what we are holding up is the truth, the power, the beauty of the gospel. And we do that by the strength of our community, by how we behave in the household of God. That's why I've titled this series, Gospel Culture in God's Household. Gospel Culture in God's Household. Throughout this letter, which I anticipate preaching through over the next six to eight months, we'll be thinking about how to understand and apply how to add and strengthen the gospel culture that we enjoy and that we should be experiencing here as a local church. We're about to begin this journey to discover what it means to represent the family of God himself. And so let's read our text today. We'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along in your bulletin. The text is printed there, and there's space there for you to take notes if that's what you'd like to do, or you can just listen. That is totally fine. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The title of this message is Two Foundational Rules. Every household has its rules. These are the two foundational rules that we find in our text today. My aim today is to show you that truth and love are the foundations of God's household. We're going to have two points today. First, the rule of truth, and second, the rule of love. The rule of truth and the rule of love. First, the rule of truth. Now, this letter that we know as 1 Timothy begins in typical fashion with one of Paul's Greetings. You read through the first two verses of any of Paul's letters, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Romans. He always greets with an introduction of who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. He says, Paul, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle was someone who had seen the risen Christ and was entrusted by the risen Christ to provide leadership and authoritative teaching in the days of the early church. It is an office in the New Testament that does not continue today. Paul then identifies the source of his apostolic authority by saying it was by command of God our Savior 
and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul, Paul knew who he was, but he also knew why he was who he was. He was an apostle, not because he earned it, not because he was good enough, but because God commanded him to be so. Verse two reveals that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, whom he calls his true child in the faith. And you'll notice some very personal language in this letter as Paul writes to Timothy, his spiritual son. Now you might think it's a little awkward, almost kind of breaking into um, a private conversation between Paul and Timothy, but it's pretty clear from this letter that this letter was not just meant to be read by Timothy, but by the entire church at Ephesus, which Timothy was pastoring. And we know that because at various points in the letter, Paul starts speaking in the plural, not just in the singular as he's addressing uh, his readers. He's addressing Timothy and the church that he is pastoring. Verse two says that they, they, he calls him the true child in the faith because they weren't just brothers in Christ. They had a father-son relationship. We read about how the two of them met in Acts chapter 16. Um, we know that Timothy was Paul's hand-picked assistant as he was there on a missionary trip to Lystra. He was a young but godly man, half Jew, half Greek, uh, who became a Christian through the faithful testimony of his mother and his grandmother. And while there is no indication in scripture that Timothy's father ever became a believer, God provided a father figure in Timothy's life by bringing Paul to mentor him, to disciple him, and to train him. But more importantly, to care for him as a father. Some of Paul's affection for Timothy is revealed when he calls Christ Jesus our hope. Christ is our hope. We are hoping in Christ what he is coming to bring when he returns, the fullness of his redemption accomplished. That is our hope together, Timothy. Not just mine, not just yours, but ours together. He also says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you look at Paul's other letters, he always opens with grace to you and peace or grace and peace to you. Here he says, grace, mercy, and peace. He wants all the fullness of God's blessings to rest upon his spiritual child. We could spend lots more time just thinking and meditating on this introduction, but we're gonna move on. Having greeted Timothy with the affection of a father, Paul gets right to business and tell what it means to behave in the household of God. And what he starts with, whether the first order of business in what is most important, what is a first priority in the ordering of God's household is the issue of teaching. Teaching, what is being taught in the church that Timothy is pastoring. This isn't the first time Paul has spoken to Timothy about this. In verse three, he reminds Timothy that this is what he told him when he first left him in Ephesus while Paul himself went on to Macedonia. He left Timothy there to guard the teaching of the church by charging certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now it really is amazing that that would be the reason why this spiritual father-son duo would separate. They didn't separate because Timothy was looking for his first pastorate or for the sake of church planting or evangelism or mission. No, they, they, they separate for the sake of teaching he leaves his true child in the faith at Ephesus to pastor by himself so that the pure doctrine of this church would be preserved and proclaimed. 
Now, the obvious point here that is easy to miss, but I want to emphasize here, is this shows us that there was already a body of teaching, a collection of accepted doctrines that were meant to be exclusively taught in New Testament churches. Now, we know that the New Testament hadn't been fully written yet, and even those parts that had been written hadn't been fully distributed yet, and yet Paul can say, don't let anybody teach any different doctrine. There's a collection of orthodoxy already established by which they can measure what is false and what is not true. It's like how we identify counterfeit bills. We know what is counterfeit by knowing what is true, what is a real bill. That's the only way that verse three makes sense. Timothy could only heed this command to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine if he knew what was different about their doctrine. And the only way he could know what was different about their doctrine was if he knew what true doctrine was supposed to be. And so we see that sound doctrine is essential to life in the church, always has been, always will be. Paul begins with this issue in his letter because it is of first importance. This is what I call the rule of truth. It is the first rule in God's household. This rule maintains that we must teach only what conforms to sound doctrine. And we find sound doctrine only in the Holy Scriptures because that's how doctrine has been passed down to us throughout the centuries. Churches and their pastors are to teach what is true, and what is true is found in the scriptures. We must not contradict what the scriptures teach. The life of the church depends on it. Now, it might seem like an obvious point. I'm preaching to the choir here in some sense, but we must remember that this is what the scriptures themselves teach. We didn't come up with this. Sovereign Grace Churches did not come up with this. This has been the case since the days of the early church when sound doctrine was to be taught and different doctrine was not. Now Paul goes on to forbid another form of teaching in verse four, where he forbids teaching he describes as myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, You could say that verse three is about unbiblical teaching and verse four is about extra-biblical teaching. One contradicts what the Bible has said, and what go, one goes beyond what the Bible has said. Extra biblical teaching doesn't conflict with sound doctrine like unbiblical teaching does, and yet Paul makes it clear that it's not to be taught in our churches. And why is that? Well, it's because it, it goes beyond what God has entrusted to us. He uses this language in verse 4 of the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship involves taking care of something on behalf of someone else. If you come into my house and you babysit our kids, which many people have been doing for us recently, um, uh, you are stewarding those kids on our behalf. They don't become your kids. You can't do with my kids whatever you want. You, you represent us, the parents, to our kids as our stewards. And we are stewards of God's truth. God has entrusted truth to us to care for and to respond to on his behalf. If we go beyond that truth, we've left the realm of stewardship and we've entered the realm of speculation. Now, uh, beginning earlier this year in September, I began teaching um, theology at the Christian high school uh, that's associated with the school that my kids go to in Newmarket. It's been a wonderful joy 
and uh, it sharpens me and it challenges me and it tests my patience. But uh, these, are, these are great kids. And they always come with lots of questions, which I encourage. But at our last class on Monday, after, after a while, the questions tend to get more and more into the realm of speculation. Does God love Satan? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, but God loves all his creation. He doesn't love all creation the same. You know, he has steadfast love for those who are his chosen people. But yeah, I think, I think you could say he loves Satan. Well, what would have happened if Eve sinned, but Adam didn't? Hmm, um, I'm not sure if that ever would have happened, but if it did, um, well, maybe he would have created two different planets and the sinful people go on one planet and the unsinful people go on the other one. I don't, I don't know. Um, how about this? This is my favorite. Instead of making humanity male and female, why didn't God make us all hermaphrodites? I don't know, go ask your parents. <laughs> Paul tells us in verse six, and this is the text that I, I came to my mind as we're increasingly getting to the realm of speculation in my class, that there is such a thing as vain discussion. Just because you're talking about God doesn't mean that what you're talking about is pleasing him. It doesn't mean that it's worthwhile. The church isn't a theology club. My goal as your pastor isn't to be on the cutting edge of theological innovation, to say things that go beyond the scriptures. My goal is to conform my teaching to the sound doctrine passed down to us through the ages and preserved for us in the holy scriptures. That's the first rule in God's household. It's the rule of truth. Our teaching must be completely committed to God's truth as revealed in the scriptures. Second rule. The second rule in God's household is equally important because the teaching of the truth isn't just meant, the teaching of the church is not only meant to be faithful, it's meant to be fruitful. And the main fruit that is meant to be produced by the teaching of the church is love. The rule of love. After instructing Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or speculative doctrine, he reveals the ultimate goal of this command In verse five, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's Paul's aim here. That's the ultimate reason why he says, don't let the false teachers teach. Make sure you only speak what conforms to sound doctrine. He wants the church to be a community that is characterized by love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And he knows that the only way that's possible is for the church to be committed to God's truth. Love, my friends, is the cardinal Christian virtue. Paul said as much in his other letter to the Corinthian church when he said, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest is love. Again, in Colossians chapter three, he instructs the church to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. But then he says, and above all these things, put on love. Above them all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This shouldn't come to a surprise to us that Paul gives primacy to love. Because Jesus himself said that all the law and the prophets are summarized in the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, And the second, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's saying the same thing here. 
He's saying the aim of our charge to stop false teaching, the aim of our charge to not get into the realm of speculative theology, the aim of our charge to guard the office of teacher in the church is love. And what does that mean to be a community of love? You know, some people hearing that saying, okay, the church is supposed to be love. Well, that's supposed to look like this. The culture around us would say it's supposed to look like a community of people who accept people for whatever they do and whatever lifestyles they choose. And while it is true to an extent that we welcome any sinners to come and to be part of our services and to listen to the gospel and to be invited to receive forgiveness of sins, we cannot affirm every single lifestyle. And yet that's what some people would assume a culture or a community of love would look like. Well, to unpack what a community of love is truly supposed to look like, we need to look at these three phrases. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. We're going to consider these one at a time. First, the pure heart. Tim Keller, who has written very helpfully and insightfully on um, the biblical concept of the heart, he writes this. The heart is used as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitments. The direction of the heart then controls everything, our thinking, feeling, and decisions and actions. What we most love, we find reasonable, desirable, and doable. That last sentence there in particular is worth writing down somewhere. What we most love, we find reasonable, desirable, and doable. What we love directs the mind, what we find reasonable. What we love uh, affects the emotions, what we find desirable. And what we love affects our will, what we find doable. All three, the, the, the reason of our minds, the willpower that we exercise, the emotions that we feel is directed by what we love, by our hearts. Now, Tim Keller goes on to write that the ancient Greeks and Romans believed that the greatest human struggle was between the mind and the passions, the mind and the feelings. They want things, but they exercise self-control by putting what they know is right uh, beyond what they feel is right. Our culture today has it the reverse. Uh, it, the struggle still is between the mind and the emotions, but the emotions take priority over the mind. What you feel is right is far superior to what you know is right. The Christian conception of the human struggle, however, is radically different. It doesn't, it doesn't pit the mind against the emotions. It centers the human struggle in the heart. Our problem isn't that our heart is against something else. Our, heart, uh, our problem is that f- different forces tear our hearts in different directions, and that is not what we were made for. Our hearts were meant to be directed in a unified, singular way towards God. But our hearts don't do that because our hearts are tainted. Our sin inclines our hearts away from God and towards lesser things, but the gospel purifies our hearts and unites our affections, directing them heavenward to God, to our creator, rather than earthward to the creature. And when that happens, every other love falls into its proper place in the hierarchy of our affections. Love of pleasure, love of family, love of life, these are all good loves. But when we love them as the greatest things in our lives, they will crumble under the weight of our expectations. The only way we can love anything in a way that will sustain those things and bring us the fullest enjoyment of those things is if we love God most of all. 
That's when the rest of life begins to make sense. So true love for God and neighbor issues from a pure heart, a heart that has been purified by the gospel to be directed to God. Second, the good conscience. Love issues from a good conscience. The conscience is the center of our moral lives. What we know is right and what is wrong. When our conscience is bad, when it's not working the way that it should, we love what is evil and we hate what is good. We affirm what is wrong and we deny what is right. True love, it can't grow out of such twisted beliefs. It must emerge out of a conscience that has been made good by the reorienting power of the gospel. That is why a community of love can't just be a community that accepts all lifestyles and moral choices. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you remember, he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We can't love truly if we don't love what is true. We can't love truly if we don't love what is true. True love issues from a good conscience. Third, a sincere faith. Literally, um, as one commentary put it, in unhypocritical faith. We can't truly love if we're faking it, if we're putting on an image to portray ourselves as someone that we're not, to receive the applause of other people. Hypocrites want people's attention on them. Those who aren't hypocrites, who have a sincere faith, want the attention on God. The example of the Pharisees taught us that religion without grace Religion without grace is a hypocrite-creating factory where everyone's just trying to keep the rules and be seen as the best at it. A religion of grace, a religion based in and springing out of the gospel, on the other hand, frees us from our hypocrisy because it enables us to stare at the blackness of our sin and not fall into despair, but to know that we are forgiven in Christ so that we can be humble and real before others. These, these are the three things, my friends, that form the soil from which true love and true loving communities emerge from. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. These are the things that we need to be and increasingly become in order to be a loving community. The only way we get these things is through the true doctrine of the scriptures that find its summation, culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, wherever doctrine is the purest, love must be the highest. Wherever doctrine is the purest, love must be the highest. We can't take this for granted. We can't just assume that this is who we're gonna be. It's no guarantee that our doctrine will be pure or that our love would be the distinguishing mark of our community. After all, That didn't end up happening with this church, the church at Ephesus, the church that had a man as godly and wise as Timothy pastoring it, a church that had the benefit of receiving apostolic instruction from Paul himself. How do we know that? How do we know that they would not be faithful? Well, we know that because of what the risen Christ says about the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. You remember, he wrote seven letters to seven churches in the New Testament era. The first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. What does he write? First, he commends them for upholding the rule of truth. Revelation 2, verse 2, he says, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He commends them for that. They had upheld the rule of truth with flying colors. But then he writes, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Do you see how twisted our sinful hearts can be? That we can love doctrine without loving Christ. That we could be fully committed to principles but not committed to people. If we are to be a faithful church, we must value truth and love equally. We must believe with all our hearts that true love only comes from true doctrine and that true doctrine must produce true love to appear worthy of belief. To quote Ray Ray Ortland once again, without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. These two rules, the rule of truth and the rule of love, form the bedrock of what it means to live in the household of God. Together, they serve as the foundation for cultivating and deepening a gospel culture so that our church would serve the Lord as a pillar and buttress of the truth, putting the the gospel in all its beauty and power on display by our words, by our actions, by the nature and culture of our community. Now, let me end with two practical suggestions for how we can cultivate these two rules, the rule of truth and the rule of love. First, I would encourage you, and this is is gonna make some people laugh, I would encourage you to read a comprehensive and reliable book on Christian theology, okay? We like to do Bible studies, and that's great. I want you to read your Bibles by yourselves, together with other people, but let's read theology together. This isn't just for the academics, the pastors. This is, this is for us. I mean, one of my jobs as your pastors is to guard you from the wolves. And the wolves in the New Testament are most often you know, not, not persecutors of the church that are trying to kill people. They're false teachers. They're people who look like sheep, but they're actually wolves. I'm supposed to guard you from that. Part of the way I do that is by pointing out false teaching to you. But you know what? It'd be a lot easier to, to guard our church from wolves if some of the sheep had teeth. This is, this, is, this is what gives the sheep teeth. The best book on theology is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a massive book, 1,200 pages. This, this is an abbreviated, edited version by Sovereign Grace's own Jeff Perswell, the dean of our pastor's college, who was Wayne Grudem's research assistant when he was still in seminary. This is only 500 pages. You don't have to read it cover to cover. But if you have specific questions about a specific area of theology, you can, you can open it up and say, okay, I want to read about the doctrine of the church. I want to read about the doctrine of redemption. Read this, study it together. It's, it's very, I'm reading this, I'm studying this with my high school class, with 14, 15 year olds. And is it dry? Well, sometimes it's dry but it brings about fruitful discussion when they're not asking about why humans aren't hermaphrodites. Read some theology together to promote this rule of truth that we are committed to sound doctrine. Second, relating to the rule of love, I would encourage you to bring an intentional desire to deepen in your love for God 
and for neighbor whenever you open up your Bible. When you're reading in your own private worship, remember that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience in a sincere faith. Pray for that. When you open up your Bible, don't just ask for understanding. Ask for love for God and for neighbor. When you open up your Bible to have a a debate with someone you disagree with, it could be a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, or you know, a, a Christian in another denomination. Don't just try to win the argument. Try to win the person. Because if we talk about theology in a way that does not increase and promote love for God and for neighbor, we have missed the point. When we come to church and we sit under the lengthy preaching of the word, We devote all this time to looking at the scriptures. Don't just come excited to hear me. And don't just come excited to read the scriptures. Come excited to grow in your love for God and for neighbor. My friends, if we go home from this place with less love for our spouses or our children, less love for our coworkers, more pride perhaps in our theology and the things that we get right, but less care for those who are needy, we've missed the point. Because the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's how gospel culture is formed. That is how faithful churches are built. Let's pray. Father, our hope in excelling at truth and love is not in ourselves. It's definitely not in me or our pastors or our leaders. It it is only in Christ. Christ will build his church. And our cry to you, Father, is that he would continue to be pleased to build his church here at Sovereign Grace Church Toronto on a foundation, a rock-solid, unshakable foundation of truth and love, that these would be the distinguishing marks of our church, not only for these years, but the years to come. We want to be a faithful church, Father, not for our own legacy, for our own reputation, but for the glory of your holy name. Be pleased, Father, to build this into our foundation. And as we build on that foundation, as we cultivate a gospel culture in different areas of our lives and our life as a church, may you Give us the tremendous privilege and joy of projecting the beauty of the gospel for all to see. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.